0: Word of explanation for the um, those of you that might be wondering first we um before lent which is the season leading up to easter we're preaching through the book of romans and we will be starting that again next week our custom here is to just preach through books of the bible as our general general habit although we took a break for the time leading up to easter but we will start that again and don't worry you'll have plenty of time for most of the rest of this year and a decent part of next year in romans if you're really if you're really tapping your feet it's okay but um But last Sunday was Easter, and I thought it would be worth reflecting a little bit more on on Easter and some themes coming out of it before we do that. Would you pray with me now as we look into God's word? God and Father, I pray that you might be with us as we study your word, that we might learn from it and be shaped by it. Be with all of us sinners as we sit under your word and are convicted, and be with me a sinner as I seek to preach it. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. So like we said, last week was Easter, and there's this kind of weird thing to me about the idea of Easter. So if you come to churches that, that, that do this, at least, which a lot of churches do, they have this season of Lent before Easter, and it's the season of darkness and fasting and sadness and grief and reflecting on all the hard things and sin and guilt, and it's, it's sad, right? Right? And it's kind of the point because we're we're moving towards Easter in our need, and then we have the you know Good Friday and the cross and Easter and the resurrection of Jesus, and we're just like suddenly celebrate and rejoice and be glad for one Sunday. And the problem is that one Sunday really can't balance the the six weeks of kind of sadness and grimness that comes before. No amount of sunrise services and honeyed ham and beautiful spring weather can make up for that. So what Easter should really invite us to each year is a season of joy. That's actually how the church historically kind of celebrated Easter. It was another season like Lent, Eastertide, and it would last until Ascension. And we're not going to formally recognize it this year at Kishwaukee Church or anything, but it's worth trying to have that kind of season. I mean, it makes sense biblically. As much as the Bible calls us to look at hard things, as much as it calls us to reflect on sad things and challenges, it's also full of commands to rejoice, to be glad. I started, I started counting them this week, and um, I got to 80 times that were commanded or shown examples calling us to rejoice, and I wasn't even in the New Testament yet, right? And so the Bible calls us to rejoice, and in a sense, I mean that we all want that, right? I mean, none of us is like, man, do I want to like despair or be glad? You know, ugh, I got to decide. All of us intuitively want to rejoice, but joy can be hard for us. In a weird way, I think it can be a lot harder than the darkness of Lent. I mean, to me, that call to have a season of rejoicing seems a lot harder than the call to have a season of darkness and sadness. Because I know how to be sad, actually. While I don't like to admit it to people, it's kind of my like default resting position. You know what I mean? Like if I sit on the couch and the TV's off and stuff, I'm not, I'm not grinning, right? Um, I'm kind of often sad. And so the question that I ask when I hear those calls to rejoice and think about this idea of having a season of rejoicing is not should I rejoice because like we said, the Bible, yeah, I know the Bible says to and I know that in some sense I want to but the question is how? How do I find joy when life seems so sad and contrary to it? So that's the question I want us to just reflect on for a few minutes this morning. And I want us to use this text in 1 Peter to do it. How do we rejoice? And as we ask that question, I think we start to see three different things that Peter is reminding us to rejoice in. That's how he answers the how question. Three things he says to rejoice in. So first, according to Peter, we're supposed to rejoice in our trials, which we'll talk about in a minute. But we're to rejoice in... Our trials. If you look at verse 6, Peter says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now that sounds like a crazy place to start. Rejoice in our trials. Does that mean that we're supposed to fake it? That we're supposed to say that this terrible stuff that's happening is a good thing? Paste on a smile? I mean, there are plenty of Christians that actually pretend like that's what it means. <laughs> Uh, I remember as a kid, being quoted like Romans 5.3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, or James 1.2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And the implication of it was that if, if hard times come, I should somehow still just thank God for the hard stuff, right? That I, should, that I should treat it as if it's all the same, as if like one day is like, I don't know, like butterflies and unicorn frappuccinos or whatever, and, and then the next day is like I get leprosy and my house burns down, and I'm just, I'm supposed to treat those as somehow equal because Jesus... And that is not what those verses mean, and that is not what we should teach. They're not telling us to pretend like the trials themselves are good. Rather, what those verses are doing is they're giving us a reason to rejoice, right, if you look at them. And the reason is not the trials, but it's the way God uses those trials in our lives. So if you look at verse 7 of 1 Peter, he says to rejoice in our trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter says to rejoice in trials because, he says, they'll ultimately produce attested genuineness in our faith. That our trials can, in God's unimaginable providence, work things in us, like endurance, and steadfastness, and deeper and more genuine faith. And those things are good things that we can rejoice in, even though the trials themselves aren't. That doesn't mean that the trials are good, though, right? Peter says in verse 6 that his readers are grieved by the trials. They're brought to tears. They're weeping because of them. He compares them to a refiner's fire in verse 7 that we just read. And that, that sounds nice, but he's saying, like, you're being melted by these trials. They're burning you up. They're not good in themselves. Scripture doesn't romanticize our pain. For every I counted all joy— Then there's the murdered saints in Revelation screaming out, how long, God, until you come and bring justice to this world? But, Scripture, even though it acknowledges the darkness of our world, reminds us of two beautiful realities about how, in the midst of our suffering, in our trials, we can rejoice. And the first is that it says that, that that we can rejoice in the midst. Of trials, for many of us, part of why joy can feel elusive is because we believe that it can only live in the absence of pain. We think that life is like this this, this jar full of vinegar, and joy is like the oil that you try to pour in, and you just they can't mix, right? They can't coexist, and so we feel com- discouraged by commands to rejoice. Because we think that in order to follow it, we would have to first be in a situation where our our situation was just different than it is. And this is part of what Paul and Peter and James are trying to set us free from. They're saying everything doesn't have to be okay before you can experience the sweetness of joy. You don't have to come up to the cathedral in order to rejoice. That joy can somehow meet you there in the streets and the trenches of life. And you can do that Because we can rejoice in the results of our trials, in the results of our trials, that even though the trials themselves are bitter and hard, we can rejoice in the results. Because that's what Christianity promises. It doesn't pretend like the darkness isn't dark, but it promises that the darkness isn't the end of the story that the darkness doesn't ultimately win or get to define things, that somehow even the dark strands of our stories ultimately weave into something that's beautiful and good. So we're to rejoice in our trials, but not rejoice in a way that denies that that they're terrible, right? Not in a way that denies that they're hard, but in a way that acknowledges that we can rejoice in the midst of that hardness, because we hope that that hardness and that terribleness isn't the thing that ultimately defines them. But here's the thing. So we're to rejoice in our trials, and that's true, but those trials are still pretty terrible, right? And, um, and just recognizing the opportunities for joy in the end of them, in the results of them, isn't enough to help me in the present at least. So if we're going to rejoice in our trials, it's also because we need to see other things alongside our trials that we can find joy in. And Peter offers two of those as well. So Peter tells us more about our joy than just that we should have it in our trials. He also gives two kind of higher good things that we can rejoice in. And the first of those things is that Peter tells us that we can rejoice in Christ's salvation. We can rejoice in Christ's salvation. In verse 8, Peter goes off on this tangent about Jesus and our joy. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And you say, why? Like, why are we rejoicing in Jesus with this inexpressible, filled with glory joy? And he tells us in verse 9, he puts it like this, that it's the salvation of our souls. He says, obtaining the outcome of your faith. The salvation of your souls. But stop, okay? Because you hear that and you, many of us do not hear what that actually is saying. When we hear souls, what we think is that, that like the soul is like the ghost thing that lives inside of you and then haunts people you don't like when you die, right? Like that's, that's what we picture, when we hear the word soul. And that's not what the Bible means. The Bible dis- when the Bible talks about our souls, it means our kind of true selves, right? The kind of like deepest, truest reality that is us and that gives us life and animates us. And there's an immaterial part of that, right? Which is why people get confused with the ghost thing. But it's not like Casper, right? It's, it's you in your deepest and truest sense. So the salvation of our souls does not mean that, like, the ghost thing inside of us gets whisked off somewhere. The salvation of our souls means that our deep and true and real selves are being saved in Jesus. Saved from all kinds of things that would otherwise destroy or diminish us. So, like, we're being saved from our guilt by Jesus, because our true selves, right? I mean, I can only truly be what I'm designed to be in relationship with God. But I can't really be in that relationship with God because, because I'm in rebellion against him. I've declared war on my creator. And that puts distance between us. And so in Jesus and in the cross, what, one of the things that God is doing is he's healing. He's covering that guilt. He's removing that distance so that I can live in communion with God again. And my true self can be the kind of true self that it's meant to be. We're being saved from our corruption by Jesus. That there's a part of me that's twisted and warped and broken inside me. That I'm like, I mean, all of us in, are in a sense like, like, like ruined cathedrals is the image that I have, right? That you look at somebody and you can see these kind of glimpses of the glorious thing that they were made to be. But it's also... It's, it's wrecked in a way, right? It's warped and twisted and there's just like pieces of it jutting up from the ground. But Jesus is saving us from our corruption and restoring us to the glory that we were created to have. And we're being saved from the darkness around us by Jesus too. That part of the reason we can rejoice in our trials and suffering is because they're only a temporary part of our stories. That when our hearts cry out and say, God, are you going to do something about this? Are you going to do something about the the, the evil and the darkness? The answer is yes, that ultimately he is and he will. So we're called to rejoice that Jesus is doing all of that and a bunch of other things. We're not going to list this morning. The salvation of our souls. And that's the kind of thing that I can find joy in and hope in. Right? I don't know about you, but that's the kind of thing as I reflect on it that I can start to rejoice in. So the question I ask myself then becomes, why don't I rejoice in that salvation? And, um, and here's the thing, I don't think it's just a problem of information that answers that question, right? I mean, for some of us, sure, that might be news to us, the salvation of our souls, but I, I know those things are true, that Jesus has done those things, and I still don't. Spend a lot of time rejoicing. And I suspect that, I mean, there's a lot that you could say about that, but one of the, one of the answers to that, one of the, the reasons, I think, that we struggle to rejoice in those things is simply that God gives us all of these opportunities to be reminded that we don't take advantage of. So, for example, so, like, we're called to confess our sins as Christians. Let's just use this as an example. And I've heard a lot of sermons telling me, like, you should confess your sins, right? Or even, like, how to confess. And lots of sermons about what sins I should confess. But What's often lacking is, is a sermon reminding me, then, what you do after you confess your sins. Because Scripture promises us that as we confess our sins to God, that we are in that same moment experiencing his forgiveness, That those sins are actually in that moment being covered by Jesus. That they're actually being washed away. And so, yes, we should come in confession and grieve our sin and acknowledge the crooked parts in our hearts and, you know, and, and get down on your knees and weep and then as soon as that is done, you stand up and you celebrate forgiveness, Because we're to look at our sins and the darkness and the ugliness and repent and then immediately say to ourselves, and it's done. That sin no longer has any claim over me. In Jesus, I am pure and blameless and holy and everything wrong that I've confessed has been covered by his blood. There's all kinds of opportunities like that to be reminded of the salvation that we have. Every morning, we're supposed to preach that salvation to ourselves, reminding ourselves of the truths of what Jesus has done. We're to preach it to each other, right? To look at each other and tell each other the beautiful creatures that God has created us and saved us to be. I mean, this morning, we get to see some baptisms here in a minute, which is this visible sign of, of the new birth and the washing away of sin that we have in Jesus. Every month, we celebrate the Lord's Supper, and it's the same, that... That there's this forgetfulness that the world tries to force on us, that we so easily slip into, where these things in Jesus are true. We have salvation and new life. Our sins are covered. We have hope and a future. And what we need is to be reminded of them because we're so easily distracted. And as we're reminded of those things, we begin to rejoice. So one of those sources of joy that Peter wants to remind us of is the salvation that we have in Jesus. But there's another cause for joy that Peter gives as well. Another reason even in the midst of our trials. And we find that in verse 4. God calls us to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. We're to rejoice in our inheritance in Christ as well. So an inheritance, again, stop, okay? (laughs) Because again, I feel like that's the kind of thing we hear and we think one thing, and it's probably not what you think. It's not that your inheritance means that there's some make-believe golden mansion up in the clouds someday, and that you just need to endure life here, and then that ghost inside of you gets to whoosh up into the sky and live in a castle in outer space or something, or whatever exactly you picture that process as being. Because I'm not going to say that, all right? What's our inheritance in the Bible? Well, that word is an echo of this Old Testament reality. Throughout the Old Testament, there's this promise of inheritance, that's this promised land, this kingdom for Abraham's descendants. And then places like Galatians 3 in the New Testament explicitly link that idea to our inheritance, somehow connecting that hope for a promised land with the inheritance that we have as saints. More specifically, our inheritance is the promised land of God's kingdom on earth. In Ephesians 1.18, Paul prays this, all right? He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which you've been called, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Our inheritance, right? And you say, okay, Paul, what is it? And if you keep reading in Ephesians 1, what he spends like the next seven verses talking about is Jesus reigning over everything. Jesus' kingdom, this world ruled by him, is somehow our inheritance. So think about this. Part of this idea of Easter is that Jesus rises from the dead and rises in order to take up his rightful place at the Father's right hand as king. Right now, Jesus sits on this actual throne at God's right hand. What is he ruling over? The biblical answer is everything. It says that Jesus, in Ephesians 1, it says Jesus rules over all power and dominion and every name and everything in this age and the age to come. That Jesus is right now the actual king of this actual universe. And he rules over every star and planet and nation and tree and flower and microbe, everything, right? Every, every black hole, and every red giant sun, and every cell, and every subatomic particle, and everything. And right now, that reign of Jesus is from heaven, where Jesus is. But that doesn't mean that it's make-believe. It just means that in our age, it's incomplete and hard to see. So this age is one where we cannot yet see the reality of Jesus, the king's rule, fully realized even though, in a real sense, it is here, but we will see it one day. One day, the world as it is meant to be will be ours, and it will be a world of life and delight. The Bible struggles to find images for how great it will be. Here's just a few pictures the Bible gives of that world, right? That, 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 that trees are heavy and groaning with fruit to eat, and brooks are flowing with wine, And milk and honey are dripping down, and lions and lambs are lying down together, and we look at each other and see the glory and innocence that we were created to see in each other instead of darkness and shame, and we laugh deeply and run and don't tire and live and love and rejoice. That is the world by God's promise that we will ultimately have. That is our inheritance. And I think one of the keys to understanding biblical joy, I mean, I'll put this up here, right? One of the keys to understanding biblical joy is to recognize that rejoicing in Christianity means delighting right now in the world as it should be and will be, even though this isn't that world yet. That rejoicing means delighting in the world as it should be and will be, even though it isn't that world yet. So we're being called. When you look around you in creation, to savor it as if it is ours and restored, even though right now it's still broken and scarred. We're to delight in each other, in human beings, as if we were, um, as if we were, as we were should be, with all the dignity and grace and glory we were created to have, even though a lot of us are broken and scarred too. We're to eat meals together as if they're that wedding supper of the Lamb when Jesus returns. We're to love and build lives as if they will endure forever. We're to do all of that, not pretending like the brokenness isn't here right now, because it really is, right? And it's really heavy, but out of this stubborn insistence that this is our inheritance and we will hope and rejoice in that, even though it isn't here. To put it another way, what we're ultimately called to live out is a rebellion of joy. A rebellion of joy. That this world is opposed to real joy. It It will try to break it with hardship and sorrow. That it will try to squash it with cynicism and kind of worldly jadedness. It will try to rob you of it through distraction And it will fill up your house with stuff and your TiVo, with with entertainments and your lives, with busy activities. And it will do that because it has to. Because if you had eyes to see it, all of that darkness would ultimately come crumbling down. I mean... That if I stopped stuffing my face, right, and stopped buying the next thing and stopped living in constant fear and stopped expecting disappointment and stopped hating people and stopped cynically believing that things would never change, if I stopped that stuff, the whole system of sin and fear and darkness that rules my life would start to lose its power. This world is not threatened by your sadness or by your jadedness or by your kind of just passive, low-grade consumption. But it cannot handle true joy. Joy is the single greatest threat to the sinful systems of this world. Because it opens our imaginations to a world that's better than this world could ever be, right? To a promised inheritance that's greater than we could otherwise imagine. And you don't buy the things that they tell you to buy or be afraid of the things that they tell you to be afraid of when you're rejoicing in that kind of world. The little pleasures, the fleeting pleasures that sin offers you, they don't look at all impressive next to the eternal joy of life in Christ. You don't make peace with evil and darkness as just the way things have to be when you're rejoicing, because you go out and fight them, because your hope is set in a world where they aren't the way things are anymore. Now look, I say that, and that sounds romantic and exciting, and I know that day to day it isn't, that in the first place, I mean, that rebellion of joy doesn't look the same for all of us. Right? I mean, for some people, rejoicing means yelling and dancing in the streets. And for other people, it means just like you, know, you have a cup of tea out on your porch and you, you watch the kids play. And I know that that rebellion of joy is not some switch that you flip. It's a habit that takes a long time to work on and cultivate. And I've been thinking about trying to grow in joy over the last maybe 10 years, and I'm like 2% less cynical than I used to be. I mean, so, maybe I'm being cynical about that percentage, but, um, right? I mean, and that rebellion of joy, right? Like, there's days that you're not going to feel it at all. Because the darkness is really real, too, and the world is really heavy. But it is worth fighting for, even though it runs alongside our tears, because isn't it what our hearts long for? We were made for better and greater and deeper things than the stuff that the advertisements offer and the jaded sameness of this world. We were made for glory and for life and for joy, unimaginable. So while it will leave us battered and tired as we fight for it, let's fight for that joy. And let's be reminded of that as we try, coming out of Easter, to live into a season of rejoicing. Because the thing that Easter tells me more than anything else is that we do not live in a story made for cynics, right? We do not live in a story where this good guy Jesus, he kind of runs afoul of some bad guys and they kill him, the end. We live in a story where death took on this Jesus and it got its teeth kicked in. We live in a story about hope and life and resurrection springing up from the grave. As Peter puts it, of the resurrection, we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So think on that hope this season and believe in it and fight with everything you can to rejoice. Would you pray with me? Father, I just ask that... um, Man, Father, there are days that that I sit with your word and proclaim it and believe that it's true and I'm just like, man, my heart really struggles to do this in the midst of all of the, the fear and uncertainty of life. And this is one of those days. But I know that it is worth it. So impress on me and impress on all of us the hope and the joy that we have in the resurrection of Jesus. That the freedom purchased for us in his cross and the new life offered for us in his kingdom would be ours. I pray that you would help us all fight for and seek after that amen so we have a special um